Bill, if you want to come on up. Bill, I was thinking uh, today, and I got to tell you that, you know, it's been a year and a half since you've been here, but it seems like almost any time I'm getting ready or I get home and the TV would happen to be on in our bedroom, you are speaking for some reason. And my wife has just been like glued to uh, your YouTube videos and your teaching, and it's really blessed our home. It's made a huge impact in our lives, and we really appreciate that, and we're honored to have you here uh, this weekend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Bill. Thank you for bringing him here. God, we pray for Tracy. Uh, she's at home. God, just uh, this weekend, give her an amazing time at home. I know it's not easy to be separated, but just, and we just ask that your spirit would fall upon Tracy, uh, wherever she is, God. We ask for an anointing here, uh, challenge us, encourage us uh, to grow deeper in our love for you and in our relationship with you. Thank you for bringing Bill here safely. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Lamar. It's such an honor to be back here. I love this area. I love what God is doing here in this place. feels very new, feels very fresh, feels like a church plant, like... My people are coming for a different reason than they used to. It's kind of what's happening right now. I mean, when you come to church now, you kind of got to want to because there's an element of risk involved. So people come with a different heart, a different attitude, a different spirit. And uh, I'm so honored by your presence tonight. And uh, Josh and Lacey Sturm... Uh, I just got to introduce you guys, and hopefully if you were here last year, you got a chance to meet them, two of the dearest friends that Tracy and I have. Uh, they they uh, came into our lives a few years ago and adopted us, and we adopted them back. And uh, and everything about you guys, everything about who you are just delights us, and we're so proud of you all the time. I, you just uh, Spiritual sons and daughters are kind of a big deal. I don't know, it's just... Yeah, I just I feel like there's just nothing you could do to disappoint us, no matter how hard you tried. We're just going to be eternally delighted with you. And uh, you need to have people in your life that just, I don't know, they just carry the delight of heaven on them, you know? Even when they don't try. It's, you just kind of get the sense that God likes these people, and I want to hang out with them too, so. I like what he likes, and so. Yay. Uh, I'm going to do something tonight that I've never done before, and that is I'm I'm going I'm this weekend actually I'm going to preach something twice. Um, I'm I'm going to teach it tonight, and I'm going to preach it tomorrow. So I promise you, you're probably not going to catch it all tonight. So if it resonates with you, bring somebody back with you tomorrow. You'll hear it again, but differently. Uh, all right. Jesus, you're my best friend. I love that we've been talking all day about this. And Lord, I pray that you just give, give articulation, give language. to this answer to this prayer that I've been praying for the last seven months. God, unveil here in this beautiful manger of Winesburg, Ohio. The solution and an answer that this world's longing for. Thank you, Papa. Whew. If you got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 4. I want to take you to a few places this evening in, in the scriptures. And, and, and again, these are things I've actually never preached out of or even about. Uh, I've talked about them here and there, but not the way I've seen them in the past just even 48 hours. And uh, first off, let me tell you, here's what God's doing today. Right now, if God's doing anything right now, he's, he's destroying the idols of our certainty. He's dismantled the idols of our certainty. And by that I mean 
we, especially Western Christianity, we build up a certainty about things. We, um, we, we get the right job, we get the right income, we get the right, uh, you know, future set up. We, we plan out and we budget things out. And, and this is what we call wisdom. And it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And as a matter of fact, I think when we do make goals and plans, we should live for a generation that we'll never see. Plan beyond your own lifespan. That's, that's super important. But don't ever become fooled into believing that certainty is not an illusion. Because it is. It always has been. Certainty is the thing that causes us to feel safe and it causes us to feel secure. But what God is doing right now is he's, he's dismantling our certainties. Because the thing about certainty is this, is if, if you get comfortable enough, you can actually shut yourself off from hearing the voice of the Lord. And a matter of fact, you can actually build up, even if you feel like you're called into ministry, you can build up a series of expectations on the basis of, of, well, like this. Let's say the disciples, right? When the disciples were called by Jesus, these 12 guys, they had in their heart this just complete blank slate. And Jesus says, you know, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew, maybe is sitting behind a tax collector's table. He leaps over the table. And, and now he's following Jesus. Uh, he, he's probably hated in his profession, but now he's following Jesus. He left everything. Peter, blue-collar worker, leaves behind maybe rented boats. We don't know if he owned them. We don't know if he rented it. But either way, he leaves behind the boat and nets that he had minted a thousand times and a livelihood that was secure. And he drops everything to follow a complete stranger just because he got an invitation. Right? So these 12 guys who have no connection with each other, except for two of them are brothers, but they're, they're just completely disconnected in, in every way. They only have one connection, and that's him. And one of the first things that happens is he starts doing miracles. Now he's teaching some great stuff, but that's not the catch for these guys. The catch was the resonant frequency of heaven that he released in his voice and the miracles he starts doing. And so when he starts doing these miracles, stop and think about this with me for a second. If, if we're one of the 12 and we're following a total stranger and he's starting to like heal the sick and then he like raises the dead and then he restores somebody's eyesight in weird ways, like spitting on the ground, making mud out of it, and slapping it on this guy's face. One guy can't, can't speak. He's mute. Jesus goes like this and spits on his fingers and reaches out and touches the guy's tongue. No social distancing there. No hygiene involved in that at all. It's stuff that you and I would never replicate. And Jesus is doing this stuff. Now let's say that we witness this. What are we thinking? If we're living as, as Jews in occupied territory where Rome has taken over, and we know that Rome is a corrupt government system, and, and Israel is a corrupt uh, uh, religious system, but, but the Jews and, and the Romans are kind of hanging out together, and they're just, I mean, there's corruption going on like crazy. I'm thinking, if I'm seeing a guy just raise somebody from the dead, and he's talking about the kingdom, in my mind, I'm thinking, he's got plans to overthrow Rome and overturn the religious system. He's going to clean out the corruption in the political and the religious system. That's awesome. Now, I'd be maybe having some expectations about how that would come about. And not only that, but maybe we'd start visiting a little bit about, hey, you, you mean, that, that means we got like some jobs in the new government. He's only got one right and one left. There's 12 of us. I wonder who gets to be the greatest. I wonder how that works. I mean, we, we may have these conversations behind the scenes because we would be building up expectations based upon his own words and his own abilities. Why wouldn't we do that? But the expectations that they had actually were, were threatening to derail them from the destiny that they were actually called into. So Jesus dies without overthrowing the Romans and without overthrowing the Jews. He dies at the hands of both of them. When he is resurrected, he once again comes to the disciples, and at this point now, the 
the leader of the group, Peter, is so mad he denies even knowing Jesus, and the treasurer has gone out and hung himself. So now we're down to 10, and Jesus is showing up to these guys after the resurrection, and he's essentially now looking at 10 people who are completely blank slates all over again. They have no expectations now. And actually, kind of that's where he needed them to be. He didn't need them to have expectations about what their great ministries were going to look like. I think, I think it's great that we dream. And I think it's great that we, we come up with some, oh man, let's just dream big dreams. But I think sometimes dreams that we dream independently of God that we hang on to more than hearing his voice can actually derail our destiny. It's almost like this. It's like success in the kingdom of God might be like God saying to one person, I want you to go to Africa and preach to 12 million people. Go, go reach an entire continent. And then to another person, that person, let's say, let's say they, they hear that word from God and they go, I don't even know how that's going to happen, but yes, Lord, if you say, okay, I'll go. And suddenly they're walking through door after door after door. It seems like for whatever reason, God starts making things happen. And there's always work to it, but there's grace to do it. So it never really feels like work, but you're working harder than anybody else could in their own strength. It's crazy how it works. But when you're called by God, he equips you and empowers you to do it. And you know you can't take any of the credit for it. So you walk humbly into a just one yes after another until pretty soon you've reached an entire continent or region or town or whatever for Christ. Why? Because that's what he called you to. But to another person, he might say, I don't want you to go anywhere. See that room you got in your house that you're not using? I want you to turn that into a place of prayer. Hang up some pictures of these specific people and every day get before me and just call out their names. Pray for them every single day. Yeah, but nobody will know I'm even doing it. That's not the point. We only have one measure of success in the kingdom of God and that is our yes to his voice. That's it. doesn't matter if we reach 12 million people in, in, in some other country or if we never talk to a single person but we answer the call to, to maybe just get into our prayer closet. I, th I think when everything is said and done, they get the same reward. As a matter of fact, if, if, if reaching an entire continent is our idea and not his, we'll kill ourselves trying. We might martyr ourselves on the altar of our own ego. And other people might think that we're a hero when in fact God never called us to do that. I'm not saying people have done that. That's the case. I'm just saying we have one measure of success in this life as children of God and that is a surrendered yes to his voice. That's it. It's the difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Because Jesus never told us to go make believers. He told us to go make disciples. And you, beca you can become a believer like that by faith, in a second by faith, but you cannot become a disciple like that. It'll take a lifetime to be a disciple. Why? It requires time. A believer simply has to say yes. A disciple never stops saying yes. How do you know a disciple from a believer? When your yes is about to cost you and you say yes anyway. That's a disciple. Jesus said, go, go make disciples. People who are saying yes and never stop saying yes, even when things are hard and th even when things are difficult and even when there's suffering involved. That's the thing as revivalists we don't like to talk about is suffering. But the reality is, is I think we, we've got to learn how to actually walk. Here's the thing. Everybody is going to face difficulty. Every person in here, doesn't matter Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter, we're all going to face difficulties in life. We're going to face joys. We're going to face trials. Here's the deal, though. If we don't learn as believers how to walk through suffering with our faith intact from a posture of victory, then we will never have a gospel that a suffering world can relate to. There's something about, there's something about the consistent saying yes, even when every circumstance is exalting itself against the knowledge of God in that moment. And... Uh, with that all in mind, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 uh, tells the story of two brothers. 
The yes I'm going to encourage you to say tonight, by the way, is a powerful yes, and it's already in you, and it will unlock something that won't just affect you. It will affect your household. It will affect the atmosphere around you. It can even affect the land and the atmosphere physically in this world. Does that sound intriguing enough? Yeah. Uh-huh. So in Genesis chapter 4, it's the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. So read along with me, just kind of look with me, and starting in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now stop for a second with me. You understand that Cain hasn't sinned yet. We know what's about to happen. You guys understand, you've seen the, you know the Bible story, Cain's about to kill his brother. We get that. But it hasn't happened yet. And God comes to Cain to have a conversation with him before he ever does this. And the first thing he points out to Cain is this. Why has your countenance fallen? The countenance, the face that we, we have actually was built uh, in a face-to-face encounter with God. Is realized we were born in a face-to-face encounter with God. When he made us in his image and likeness, he breathed into us the very breath of life and we were born in a face-to-face encounter with God. Man's very first conscious experience that we ever had was to, to open our eyes to behold the face of a father who adored us. The very first thing we knew about ourselves is that we were much loved children of a really good dad. Long before we did anything to impress him or disappoint him, he had made up his mind about us. He was delighted and overflowing with love because that's his nature. He created us from that place of overflow. So the countenance is is the thing that actually puts on display in this world the image of God. Now the difference between the image and likeness of God is this. The image of God is the attributes of God. And actually every single human being that has or ever will live bears the image of God. The likeness of God is the application or the representation of those attributes. And the reality is, even though we may bear the image of God, we don't know how to put on display the likeness of God until we surrender to let the Holy Spirit teach us how. This is part of the yes. We're partakers, according to the New Covenant, we're partakers of his divine nature. In other words, it's almost like he's broken off a piece of his nature and given it to us and said, here, they can eat this, and, and we reflect what we ingest. I think of it like this. Uh, how long does it take corn to mature? Well, we're in like corn country, right? So corn matures in what, like 90 days, right? So I can't go and stand out in a field, put my feet in the dirt, and just absorb the nutrients of the dirt for three months. How do I get those nutrients in me? I let something else do it called corn. I walk over to the corn, I pick it up, I eat it, and instantly everything that has grown into the nutrients that are in that that substance instantly become a part of me. Jesus is, is talking about his flesh and his blood, and he says, take and eat. My flesh is food, my blood is drink. He essentially was telling an agricultural society, do you understand that if you partake of me, everything about who I am will instantly be assimilated into who you are. You don't have to work your entire life to become like me. Just simply recognize there's no distance and separation and then let me define how you do life. So God comes to Cain and says, hey Cain, why is your countenance fallen? It's interesting because God immediately notices that the face of this young man is not reflecting the nature of his heart. And so this is what he says. I want you to see this in verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. All right, three parts to this that are super important. The first thing is, how many of you ever heard of generational curses, right? Kind of a big deal in, in the church, especially in Pentecostal circles. We love the topic of these generational things. We just like to blame things and, you know, on, on people that aren't around anymore. So, so it's interesting here because there's a lot of teaching that says that we are stuck with a sin nature because of what Adam did. Well, Genesis 4, 7, God comes to Cain, and he doesn't say, what he doesn't say is super important. He doesn't say, hey, Cain, sin is in you because of what your parents did. He actually says this, sin is crouching at your door, at the door. Now, a door represents something. It's a gateway. It's a point of transition from one thing into another. So the question then is this. Who is mastering the door? In this case, it's Cain. He's mastering the door. He's the one that gets to... And that's the reality of, of, this, of this thing, of the, the nature of the invitational uh, language of heaven. As a matter of fact, in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. How many of you know Jesus doesn't have to knock at the door? He can kick it open. He can possess you. He can take you over. He's not going to do it, though. I stand at the door and I knock. Hear my voice and open the door. I'll come in and we'll break bread and have a meal. So here's the deal. The door represents a choice that you and I get to make. Now, this is a powerful reality because sin is on the other side of a choice. So you say, well, well I, I sin because I have a sin nature. No, you don't. You have a choice. You may have developed a habit. You may have developed a desire that stems from a habitual choice over and over again. So you're used to making the same choice. And so over the course of time, you develop that habit. But it's not your nature anymore. Why? Because your old nature was crucified with Christ on the cross once and for all done. And now you are being invited into being a partaker of a new nature. So and here's the thing. The Word of God... The most powerful force in the whole universe is the Word of God. His words literally create worlds, but he will not use his word to break your will. He simply offers his word as an invitation for you to say yes or no. I, mean, I think this is amazing about the grace of God because he just puts the most powerful force in the universe out there and says, here you go. Make a choice. Sin is crouching at the door. It's always a choice. We always have the ability to choose. Sometimes we choose, right? Sometimes we don't. It happens. None of us like to admit that we don't, but sometimes we just don't. Unless you're a better person than I am. In which case... This is not even remotely relevant to you. You're like, I've never opened the door. I have no idea what you're talking about, Bill. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. See, darkness actually has a desire for you. Actually, the word desire here is fascinating. It actually means having an appetite for your destruction. I wonder, where, I wonder if that's where Guns N' Roses got the title of the album. I don't know. It's a great album, too. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> 1987, Kansas City. I'll never forget it. Anyhow, there's, there's a sense where the darkness literally has an appetite in and of itself for your destruction. And it's sitting there going, come on, pay attention. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. And then this is what God says to Cain. It's desires for you, but you must master it. What? I, I, I've got to master it? To master it, right there, by the way, means to exercise dominion or to exercise authority. Here, here's the thing. Sin, sin is meant to cause us to believe that we're actually weak. When if we will rest in the strength of Christ, we'll expose that we're more powerful than we thought. Because when we're weak, we, he is strong, right? So it's desire is for us, but we must master it. So now, here, here's the thing. Cain now has this choice to make. He hasn't done anything yet. 
He hears what God says. He actually has a conversation with God about this. And then he goes over and he tells his brother about it. And the next few verses go like this. That Cain goes over and he talks to his brother about it. And then they have an argument out in the field. And Cain kills Abel. Which is fascinating because it's the very first church worship service offering on record. So the very first collective worship service that we have in the Bible results in 50% of the congregation getting killed by the other 50%. And they're related. So the church is off to a great start. God comes to Cain and he goes, hey Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God, of course, knows what Cain's done. And this is what God says to him. He says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. As a matter of fact, the earth has opened its mouth to receive the blood of your brother. And now the earth is going to be really upset with you. What God literally says there is this, that the earth will not work for you. In other words, you're going to be working all the days of your life and it's not going to work for you. It's a fascinating portion of scripture because here's what it reveals. Abel's thoroughly innocent. And in his death, he cries out for justice. An innocent person gets something he doesn't deserve because he made a godly choice and somebody takes an ungodly stance, comes against him, murders him, and now what happens here? Abel's blood literally impacts the environment with a cry for justice that the earth interprets as a curse and now is going to respond to that cry for justice or judgment by literally not working for the guilty guy. I want you to see this. Okay, this is the part that really, really trips me out and this is where we're going to kind of start melting your head a little bit. A cry for justice from an innocent person, from a human standpoint, wanting judgment and justice to come upon somebody else literally impacts the ground, the environment. Think about this. Is it possible that the attitude of our heart, even though justified, can impact the atmosphere? Even so much as impacting the earth. Think about the world right now. We are in an unprecedented season of weird. Weather-wise, hey, listen, weather-wise, it's freaky out there. California's burning. We got hurricane one after the other. For the first time in recorded history, there were two hurricanes hanging out, tangoing in the Gulf at the same time. And in Florida, we're watching this going, do we batten down the hatches? Don't we? We have no idea where these things are going. It's a roll of the dice. It's crazy. I mean, heat waves off, off the chain, rain, floods, wild, weird stuff. Now, in the Bible, when weather anomalies happen, a lot of times people attribute it to the judgment of God. But here's the, here's the freaky part about it. The Bible says the heavens are made for God, but the earth he has entrusted to the children of men. I think that the weather and the situations going on in the, in, in, the, in the world and the climate and everything, I do believe it's judgment, but I don't think it's God's. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, man, it's a judgment of God. I said, yeah, I could believe that if there was somebody in the White House you didn't like. Because that's what we always blame it on. We, 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 you know, we uh, elect somebody, let's say, that, that, that's, that's pro-choice. And we're like, we elect them in the White House, and suddenly the first tornado that happens that wipes some town in Oklahoma out, we're like, well, that's a judgment of God because we elected somebody that God doesn't like. Well, what's our excuse now? So I look at this and I go, oh, I realize this beginning moment here, almost the very first murder on record, an innocent person cries out for justice. And in his death, the environment is actually impacted in a way that it brings a curse upon the guilty person. There's a precedent set. 
And in theology, it's called the, the law of, of, of first. The first, first revelation about anything sort of sets a precedent about it. Um, as a matter of fact, there's something about anger that, that, that anger and rage in our heart that once we give place to it, it kind of takes us on a bit of a journey. As a matter of fact, when I was praying about, you know, what, uh, what, what was going on in this season, God took me to Isaiah 26. And Isaiah 26, somewhere about halfway down the chapter, it says, close yourself in your house. In other words, shut yourself away until indignation has run its course. There was a time in, in Israel's history where people were just off the chain, just going crazy. Uh, anger, people, uh, nation fighting against nation, wrestling against flesh and blood. And God actually says to his people, he says, close yourself away in your house until indignation has run its course. The phrase run its course is really important because it's almost like once a person partners with a spirit of rage, anger, or hatred, things that are contrary to the very heart and nature of God, it's almost like you're signing up for a vacation to hell. It's like there's a journey and it has a destination and anger will take you places you don't want to go. Even in the new covenant, James says it like this, says your tongue is actually, uh, it's, it's a flame of fire and it's actually set on a course when, when, when you like have no restraint over your tongue and you just start like cursing people instead of blessing people, start cursing people with that unrestrained member, it says it's set on a course of fire from hell which is fascinating when you stop and think about it because it's almost like we talk ourselves into a journey. Anger will take you to a destination. I promise you, you don't want to go. And you'll leave a massive wake. And it's not just relationally. I think there's something that happens in the atmosphere when we, made in the image and likeness of God, actually start declaring things contrary to the heart of God. And have you been on social media lately? It's a dumpster fire out there. I put out a post like two days ago. It's up to like 400 comments, and most of them are two guys that will not stop arguing. And I just watch this. I'm, they're going, here's the crazy part about it. Both of them think they're righteous. Both of them, the motivation of their heart is righteousness, but they're seeing completely opposite perspectives. Now, these godly, righteous people have taken to cussing each other out on my thread and I'm sitting there thinking, should I delete that? No, this is a good object lesson. <laughs> I mean, I just want them just to remind them of what they're going to have to repent for later. Not to me, to each other. Because you guys are supposed to be brothers. It's crazy. So, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to show you the last part of this, which... At least this is as far as we're going to get tonight. Tomorrow I'll do this in shorter form, but I've got an addition at the end that we'll use a, a little object lesson that'll just make it fun and easy to remember. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 22. Now we're in the new covenant. And it says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here we go. This is the part I want you to see. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, here's the part about this that I find fascinating. Why are we contrasting Christ's blood and Abel's blood? We should be comparing them. They're so much alike. Think about it. Both of them were murdered. Both of them were innocent. And both of them were innocently murdered, or murdered as innocent, but, but they were murdered for righteousness' sake. In other words, they did righteous things, and because of that, they were hated and murdered. They have a ton in common, except, apparently, there's a contrast here. And that is the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrew point, Hebrews points this out. It's fascinating to me. Because in, in, in Matthew chapter 23, 
there's this great little part where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And he says to them, and you guys can read this one in your own time, Matthew 23. Jesus says to these guys, he says, woe to you guys. You kill the prophets. I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet to you. And from righteous Abel all the way down to the guy that you killed between, between the altar and the steps, that guy, you kill all the people that I send to you. And then he says something fascinating. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets, how I've longed, now pay attention to this part, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. No, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make any sense. You say, I think it makes sense. No, wait, I'll, I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense and then it won't make sense to you too. He looks like he's protecting the people who are doing the killing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how I've longed to gather you. In other words, to protect you as a hen protects or covers her chicks, but you won't. What would he be protecting them from? They're guilty of sin, literally. Could it be that from Abel, righteous Abel, all the way down through the prophets, all these innocent, godly prophets, as they're, as they're dying, release judgment after judgment after judgment. In other words, from posture of self-righteousness, because they did it all right, and now they're suffering for it, their hearts are not tuned towards grace, but judgment, which may answer the question, why do we see so much judgment in the Old Testament? It wasn't God releasing it, it was people who didn't have a fullness of the revelation of the goodness of the grace of God or what that grace could actually do to an atmosphere. It, this was a tradition for these people. It's so much so that when they get rejected in one town, they come to Jesus and go, hey, can we call down fire on those people like Elijah did? And Jesus looks at him and goes, you guys don't even know what spirit you're of. The phrase, you don't know what spirit you're of, can be reinterpreted like this. If you want that manifestation of that anointing, you're going to have to go to a different spirit to get it because I'm not imparting that to you. So there's a history from righteous Abel, who is called righteous in Matthew 23, all the way down through the prophets. These righteous people who were good people but were killed unjustly had a history of releasing judgment and not grace. Why would that change in their death? And so the entire world is filled with bloodshed, violence, and judgment. And now Jesus goes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you guys who kill the prophets, I wish I could protect you. What? Why is he protecting the killers? Because he knows the effect that our judgment has on the atmosphere and what happens in the atmosphere to actually begin to shift itself against the people that we're releasing judgment over so that they suddenly start being cursed by the very environment that's supposed to bring us peace. I don't know if you're catching what I'm saying here, but when it says now in Hebrews 12, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and his blood speaks a better word or speaks better things than the blood of Abel, it's a contrast. When Abel's blood spilled into the ground, he cried out for justice and judgment and the ground goes, okay, I'll respond and curses the guilty guy. How many of you know it didn't just affect Cain? It affected his family line. It affected the people around him. There was an environmental impact because of the judgment of a blood of an innocent person who declared justice. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, bleeding out into that same ground, the power of that blood, we would say spiritually, it has an impact on, it, on us. But here's the thing. The word of that blood goes into the ground and from time and eternity goes all the way back to the blood of Abel. And where, where Abel's blood released a generational curse, Jesus' blood now releases a generational grace that goes past, present, and into the future. And here's the thing. The call to us is to agree with the blood of Christ. Could we change the atmosphere by releasing grace over people intentionally? I think we can. What's the solution to global warming? Grace. What's the solution to the racial divide? Grace. But, but, but what about white supremacy? The 
gospel is a call to denounce every supremacy. I don't care what it is. Spiritual supremacy. You believe better than other people. Your theology is better than other people's. Denominational supremacy. Our denomination has it better than that. We used to go to that church. We don't go to that church anymore because they're wrong. We're righter than they are. That's not even a word. But you know what I'm saying? It's like... Doesn't matter. Gender supremacy. In Christ, there's no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. In Christ, Christ becomes the only supremacy, and in Him, it transcends all. Uh, it, it lifts us above every every limitation we have by gender, race, nationality, or social status. We all find ourselves being united in Christ. And we can believe that spiritually from our heart and our mind. But I'm saying there's something about the words of our mouth speaking a better word than the blood of Abel and the look of our countenance that's got to release the grace of Christ. And here's the thing. I think when we do it, we will change the atmosphere. I, I don't expect the whole body of Christ to go, oh yeah, we'll, we'll start speaking good good stuff stuff and and maybe we'll maybe we'll take the rage off of our face for a little because we feel so justified and here's here's a crazy thing is I find uh I find more and more opportunities to do this to change the atmosphere with a look and with a word purposely intentionally to shift the atmosphere with a look and with a word it's almost as if we have forgotten what the fruit of the Spirit actually is. That kindness and gentleness and self-control are actually fruits of the Spirit of God. And we were actually built for fruit-bearing. That it's not taking a passive stance to let the kindness and the gentleness of the Spirit of God move through us to impact the world around us. You say, yeah, but he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Listen, he shows up in Revelation once as a lion, shows up 10 times as a lamb. So if you want the, the, the power of the lion, you first have to embrace the heart of the lamb. The gentleness of the lamb. And everybody right now, we're in a weird, weird time. Used to be the, 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 the local coffee shop and the barber shop and whatever happened to be. That was the social media. Now... We have one opportunity, you get on your phone, and, and the whole world, if they wanted to, could read what you've got to say. And I look at what people, godly, good people, are releasing into the world right now, and I recognize they're coming into alignment with the blood of Abel. Righteous, innocent, fully self-righteous, fully justified. But there's something about coming into alignment with the blood of Christ that causes us to surrender to speak a better word, to come into alignment with what he is saying. And I'm looking at a world that's, that's it's almost like the entire planet is groaning. As a matter of fact, Romans said it like this, the entire world is groaning, awaiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Do we understand what that means? Children reflect the nature of their dad the image, and, and hopefully come into alignment with the likeness to put that on display. And the Bible says that the world will know that we are Christians, followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, by the love we have for one another. Yeah, but Bill, you don't understand. I, I can't let disagreements go unchallenged. I can't let bad theology go unchallenged. How bad does our theology have to be for them to become your enemy? And Jesus told us what to do with our enemies. Fascinating thing. It's the, it's the hardest word of Jesus to pervert. We can try, but we can't twist this one. We can't pervert this one. Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah, 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 I understand. I love them in my heart. I just don't like them. No, no, no. Here's, here's the thing. He says, love your enemies. Then he defines it like this. Bless those who curse you. They're coming into agreement with the blood of Abel. You come into agreement with my blood. Bless those who curse you. Yeah, but how do we do that? Okay, let's define it even further. Pray for, not against. Pray, it's a big, big difference, by the way. Pray for those who, listen, despitefully use you. Now think about that phrase. 
It means from a position of a, a malicious posture of heart are actually seeking to abuse you. They're not even hurting you by accident. They're doing it on purpose. And Jesus goes, love your enemies. Let me define how that looks. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who actually intend to cause you harm. I don't know how uncomfortable you are with that, but I realize I can't look at that 10 different ways. I, I can only see that one way. It, it's an impossible word to pervert and twist. And I realize he's not just telling me to just roll over and let the world just roll over on top of me and just like run me into the ground. It's not what he's saying. Romans 16, 19 says it like this. And this is a good one to write down. It's a good handbook for you. Be excellent in what is good and be innocent of evil, right? What that means is be experts in the goodness of God. Excellent in what is good. Be experts in the goodness of God. To be innocent of evil means this. Don't allow the works of darkness to actually have a place of influence in your life. Don't give the devil an opportunity to actually have a posture of influence in your life. Even if that turns your heart, in a sense, you just like, man, I hate, I just hate the works of the devil so much. People can, people can hate something so much that they get consumed by what they hate and start reflecting the very nature of the thing that they're against because you become what you behold, which is why it says, be excellent in what is good, be innocent of evil. In other words, don't even give place to that. And you say, well, I, I just want to defeat, the, I just want to like, I want the devil to be under my feet. The next line says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Who's going to do it? He is, but he's going to make it look like your victory. What were you doing? I'm focused on, on him. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing this bridal covenant, this glorious union. And in that posture, it looks like I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me. And everybody else down here is wrestling against flesh and blood. But now my, my eyes are fixed and focused on the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God. And suddenly you realize there's something under my feet. Oh, devil, how'd you get under there? It's crazy. I wasn't even trying. See, that's the deal. The posture of victory is manifest by us taking our eyes off the works of darkness on what he's doing, that, that becoming our focus. I think that's step one in learning how to come into alignment with the blood of Christ over the blood of Abel. Uh, let me give you another, uh, another way of looking at it like this. Uh, I, I am undone these days by how many smart friends I have that are going crazy on conspiracy theories. Like, like texting me conspiracy theories. Like today, I had like six texts. When I got off the plane, I got this friend that's like, dude, George Soros, uh, you know, da -da -da -da, Jeffrey Epstein. Da -da 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 -da. I'm, like, I'm like, oh man. It's like, this guy's like super, like, look at what the devil's doing here, 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 and here, and here. And there's always a Clinton in there somewhere. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, come on. It's like, Bill, you can't have your head buried in the sand about this stuff. But I watch, I watch as people are getting focused in on this, their lives start to unravel. It's almost like the idea is like, I don't want to be deceived. So I want to know what everything's going on. I want, I want to know what the devil's doing all around me. I want to make sure that I, I, I'm, I'm aware of everything that he's got going on. So let me just, just show you my perspective on this. Because I think there's a huge, huge, huge problem right now in the body of Christ. <clears throat> in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day, were as corrupt as any religious system has ever been, right? I don't care what church stories you can tell me, Jesus got murdered, right? So kind of a, kind of a corrupt system. Not only that, the political system was a backstabbing, it, it was a conspiracy theory uh, junk pile that was backstabbing layers deep. There were so many conspiracies going on in the Roman Empire. There was civil wars upon civil wars. As a matter of fact, it will end up resulting in the downfall of the entire empire eventually to where it doesn't even exist today. So Jesus is living in a time that is very, very much like, I guess, maybe the one that we're living in right now, where everything feels like there's a conspiracy around every corner. So here's the thing. 
Jesus knew everything. I mean, come on, what did he know? He knew everything. He knew knew the molecular structure of every rock and tree and blade of grass, what was on every person's heart, what was in every person's mind. He knew every single bit of it. He knew it all. And so if you know everything, you know that all the works of darkness, all all of them are going on at the time, you're aware of it. And the Bible says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he would destroy the works of the devil. Then when he gets up to preach, what does a guy who knows everything talk about? The kingdom is like... Have you considered the lilies? Look at the birds. Yeah, but Jesus, haven't you, haven't you been, been on Breitbart? <laughs> Did you like follow QAnon? Are you serious? You don't even know what's going The kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. What is he doing? Is he burying his head in the sand? Is he ignoring the big issues of the day? No. He's actually elevating the conversation. And he's looking at everybody around him and going, shift your perspective. The kingdom is like, lift up your heads. Redemption's drawing nigh. The kingdom is close to you. Oh, it's really near. It's actually within reach. Oh, it's within you. And it's here, and it's among you. And it's like this. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like And this is what Jesus does. A guy who knows everything. He knows every conspiracy. And when he gets up to preach, he says, the kingdom is like. This is my commandment. You guys have 613 laws and you have more commandments than you know what to do with. Here, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. If you don't know what that looks like, I'm going to bleed grace into the ground. See, when you and I are made as new creations, it means grace is in your blood. Grace is in your blood. It means we live as unoffendable. Not passive, unoffendable. We live with, and I'll begin with the, end with the beginning. We live with a simple surrender to his voice. And that is all we need. To hear what he's saying and to simply say yes. Some of you maybe have found issues in your own life and you thought, okay, well, okay, so there is something to this generational curse thing. I, 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 know, I know this, Bill, and I've been dealing with this a bunch. So let me give you, let me give you just kind of a hint to how, how the generational curse thing works from a new covenant perspective. In Ezekiel chapter 18, and also in Jeremiah, it mentions the same, same exact thing. God comes to Israel and he says, uh, he says, you guys have this saying like Genesis, uh, excuse me, uh, um, Ezekiel 18 too, I think. He comes to Israel and he goes, you guys have this saying, and this is, it was a common saying apparently among them, and it went like this. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and yet the children's teeth are set on edge. And God comes to Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, to the children of Israel, and he says, why do you guys keep saying this? You guys keep saying this saying over and over again. Well, they were using this saying to basically say what they believed was the way things worked. In other words, what dad does, the kids have to pay for. And God comes to him and goes, you guys say this thing. I don't want you to say this anymore. He says, don't say this saying anymore. All souls belong to me. Ezekiel 18, 3. All souls are mine. Don't say that saying anymore. See, as God goes through history with man, he's inviting us into a greater and greater intimacy. And with every generation, he shows up better than the previous generation thought he could. And now when he gets to this generation, he looks at him and goes, don't say that saying anymore. You, you, guys, you guys are like, you guys have this idea that your kids have to pay for what you do. That's actually not true. All souls belong to me. Oh, okay, okay. 
but they don't believe it. And still today, especially in charismatic circles, I think sometimes we don't believe it either. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, a number of things happened. They all have weight and they all carry incredible significance. And one of the things that happened was they noticed that maybe when he cried out, I thirst, you guys remember that? He cries out, I thirst, and somebody goes over and they get, a, they get like a sponge on a sword or a stick or something, a spear, and they hold it up to his mouth. You know what was in that sponge? Vinegar. What is vinegar? Sour grapes. It's wine that's gone bad. They take him, put the sour grapes up to his mouth, and what does he do? Even though he's thirsty, he looks at it and rejects it. Won't drink it. In other words, when it came time for him to actually take that in that moment, he rejects it. What was he doing? I believe on the cross, he took all of our generational curses, and he didn't just die for us, he died as us, and he gave you permission to actually cut off and reject every generational curse that could come down your line. It's the power of the new covenant. It's the power of the cross. You begin a new legacy now of generational grace and generational blessing. When you come into agreement, alignment with the blood of Christ that speaks better things than the blood of Abel, then that grace is literally in your blood. It flows from within you through the words that you speak. You release it in your declaration. And when that declaration is agreement with the blood of heaven, it carries the resonant frequency of heaven behind it. And I believe can literally change, affect the weather, how good your crops do, the health of the ground, the health of the lakes, the health of the rivers, we may actually have within us, spiritually speaking, the answer to every environmental issue that people are trying to solve through natural means. Why? Because grace is in your blood. Is this making sense to anybody? When you allow the countenance of your face that's, that bears the very fingerprint of the image and likeness of God to start reflecting the peace, the rest of heaven, you'll suddenly start to shift the atmosphere everywhere you go because you're intentionally, consciously putting it on display. When God comes to Cain, he's like, your countenance has fallen. You know what? If you do well, your countenance will be lift up, lifted up. In other words, if you'll come into alignment with what I'm inviting you into in this moment, it'll actually affect your joy. I love my friend Jim Baker in um, Columbus. I always gets up and he goes, he goes, any of you got joy in here? Please, tell your face. I just think that's cute. <laughs> I was in the Midwest recently. I was in South Dakota, and South Dakota is a hard place to preach in. It's so, it's, you know, it's... Um, you know, Norwegian farmers, and they sit there just looking at you like they hate you. <laughs> and I'm just preaching away, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this is awful. We just, let's just shut this down and go home. Clearly, none of these people want to be here. And, uh, and afterwards, this guy comes up to me who, who had the, I mean, the countenance was, it just wasn't there. It was like, you know, and he comes walking up to me, shakes my hand, and goes, thank you, that was the greatest message I've ever heard in my entire life. I'll never be the same. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> freaks me out, man. It was like, really? Are you doing Botox? What's happening here? <laughs> there's, there's something about actually being intentional to put heaven on your face. What would it look like? if you did that intentionally. Like, try this sometime when you're praying. It's interesting to me how sometimes when people go into prayer, they get a look that, that resembles what I would consider a countenance to be if a person would say, like, constipated. I don't know what that's... It's like... I, there was like this weird season for a while where it was like cool to look depressed while you were leading worship. That's why I love you, man, because you actually look like you're enjoying the presence of the Lord. I watch these guys and they're just like, giant like this. And they're singing about the greatest truth in the whole world, looking like their dog just got run over. And I'm just thinking to myself, is, is that where we are now? Is that just, it's like we pick and choose our fads. And I'm thinking, come on, get intentional about putting heaven on your face. My dear brother George Banoff calls it the Isaac face. He's like, there's the Ishmael face and then there's the Isaac face. You know, he, and he'd walk up to his staff meeting and, you know, we're about to get, I was worked with George for a couple of years and we had these leadership meetings. He'd fly us all in from all over the place and we'd come into these leadership meetings. We're tired and run down and he'd look at everybody and go, where's your Isaac face? And you're like, ha, 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 ha. 
you know, a weird thing happens when you intentionally put joy and peace in your countenance. We start like listening to some worship music. We start looking into each other's eyes. We start remembering how much we care about each other as a team. And suddenly something would happen. The countenance would change. And the atmosphere in the room would brighten. Crazy. A dear brother of mine in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Charles Stock, has a book called Glow in the Dark. And he talks about when they were hippies out in, out in California back in the 60s. Lonnie Frisbee was leading this group. And they had a house church gathering one night. And they're in there. And, you know, they all came off of drugs. They're, you know, uh, they, they were messed up beyond belief. And yet now Jesus had saved them. And they had the joy of the Lord. And he said, and we're just like looking at each other and just this glow. And if you ever meet Charles Stock, he's got this glow about him. He's just got this like... This thing about his face is just always, I don't know, he just still always shines. And he said, and, and we thought, man, it's kind of bright in here. And so they start turning lamp after lamp after lamp off, and they eventually realize there's nothing left to turn on. And it's still so bright in the room, they can like barely keep their eyes open. They realize, whoa, it's us. You say, does that happen? Yeah, there's precedence for it in the Bible. Moses goes to the mountain, has an in interaction with God where he says, show me your glory. And you know what God says? I'm going to make all my goodness to pass before you. Moses comes down from the mountain and they have to put a sheet over his face to talk to the guy. Why? Because he got a revelation of the goodness of God. How do you get a revelation of the goodness of God? Taste and see. What is to taste? Take a big bite of the flesh and a big gulp of the blood and let the nutrients in him suddenly, instantaneously, everything about him just suddenly floods everything about you. And when you get that realization, there's no distance and no separation, you go, wow, I'm going to go ahead and surrender my countenance to him. If you've never been drunk in the spirit, just dwell on that for about five minutes and there you'll be. You just let, you just let the new, I love, I love it. I had a friend coming to, I won't tell you who he is. You'll, you'll be able to recognize him. He's the most perpetually happy guy I've ever met. He's offensively happy. I think he'll be here tomorrow morning. He says, he texts me today. He goes, where's the meeting on Sunday morning? He's way from like Indiana. And I said, it's in Winesburg. And he texts back all caps, Winesburg, new Winesburg. I love it. I can't wait. Probably won't even be able to drive home. <laughs> I tell you, I, I genuinely believe that the grace that is in our blood because of what Christ has done can actually have an impact upon this physical world. And not only that, but the Bible says, hey, the world's going to know that we're disciples of Christ by the love that we have for one another. How are they going to know it unless they hear us speak it? And how are they going to know it unless they see it in our face and our countenance? And so I just speak over you tonight. I just, just want to release just over you tonight just a, a generational grace. Holy Spirit, come. God, we just, we just take in all of the nutrients. They're already there. We don't have to strive for them. We just surrender to the eternal word that your blood has been speaking over us from before the foundation of the world. Eternal life, everlasting love, mercy beyond comprehension, a baptism of innocence. Ooh, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. Wow. Some of you, it's almost like your countenance is so filled with guilt, shame, judgment, regret. You just need a baptism of innocence that brings you back to, to the innocence of being a child again. God, restore. By the power of the grace that's in your blood, God, may we all get a divine transfusion tonight. God, may impact us with a divine blood transfusion tonight. Let your grace be the heartbeat that pumps your blood within us. That ignites our countenance with the light of your face.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I praise you. I don't know if you can grab your guitar and do that song that you did at the beginning, like right up front, that one. Can I have you all just stand with me tonight? We're just going to take a few moments, and, and here's my challenge to you. As we just worship together once again, just tip your head back and just let the light of his goodness shine on you. Feel the warmth of his presence. He's not kicking the door down. He's just knocking. It's a choice. It's a choice of surrender. It's a choice of surrender. It's a choice of surrender.